Good morning, everybody. Let's take our personal copies of God's Word in whichever form you have it, and we'll go to uh, Colossians chapter 1 again for uh, our focus now on the supremacy of Christ. So Colossians chapter 1, and we'll start our reading from uh, verse 13. For he, that's the Father, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace. Through the blood of his cross. And some connecting verses then from chapter 2. Chapter 2 and verse 9. For in him, that's Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete. And he is the head over every ruler and authority. You'll want to have the portion in uh, chapter 1 open in front of you as we work through this together. But before we do, we should pray and ask the Lord for his help. And we'll employ the words of uh, verse 9 of chapter 1. Let's pray together. Our God, we're asking that we would be filled with the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Help us as we consider the greatness of your Son and of your purposes in him. Give us this help, because we need it, as we ask for it in his name, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Paul and Timothy's great concern uh, for the saints in the church of God in Colossae and Laodicea was that they would live under the lordship of Christ, the Son eternally loved by the Father. And that they would not submit themselves as some of them had been doing because of the scammers as Dave uh, described them. The false teachers who were saying they su should submit themselves to lesser authorities. Some human authorities but also some spiritual authorities. Paul and Timothy are at pains to say no you live under the lordship of God's son the Christ. And that's what the complete Christian life is all about it's living under the one that we know as God who has come in the flesh to show himself to be the cosmic ruler of everything including ourselves and then to submit ourselves like they did then we submit ourselves to his lordship and that is the fullness of the complete Christian life knowing who he is and what he has done and what God has done through him for us. Hence Paul's prayer that we've just borrowed some words from and that Ben is going to take us into in more detail in a moment. 
that as we know more of him, then we will live more like him and continue to know more of him. That's what Paul says will happen in his prayer. Now to the text before us, I just want to go up to verse 12 of chapter 1 for a moment because it is connected. Where it says that we're to joyously give thanks to the Father. That's a theme in the letter is this joy that Dave's already pointed us to. Here is this joy that we give thanks to the Father. And we're thinking of God the Father as we consider God as the Trinity, which is not a, a Bible word, but it's, it's been formed to help us to understand that God is one God in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Here Paul is saying we give joyous thanks to the Father for what he has done, which is he has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And I think that parallels what he then goes on to say in verse 13, that he, the Father, has rescued us from the domain or the power or the authority of darkness, which is the sense of the Greek word that's, that's used there, He's rescued us, the Father has, from that and has transferred us. The word meaning to take somebody from their country and plant them in another country. That's the image we should have in our mind. The Father has taken us and planted us in the kingdom of the Son of his love. I think the two things are the same. The inheritance of the saints in light and the kingdom of the Son of his love. Darkness in the scriptures is symbolic of ignorance and of falsehood and of sin and darkness is also the realm of power and influence and control in this world that is unseen but yet is there and is real and it's this control that's exerted by spiritual beings created by God that are in rebellion to God just like we naturally as sinners are born as little rebels before God so in the spiritual realm there are beings that are in rebellion to God and the scriptures describe them as the powers of this dark world go and see Paul's sister letter to this one Ephesians Ephesians 6 verse 12 he says there that our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against these powers and he describes them as the powers of this dark world, the world forces of wickedness. Now Paul is then at pains to say to these people, look, if you're submitting yourself to these authorities that the false teachers say that you should submit yourself to, you're actually submitting yourself to the forces of darkness. But remember, you've been brought out, transferred, translated, uh, transplanted from the powers of darkness and the power in the realm of darkness into the kingdom of the son of his love which means that you then share in the inheritance that is his which is the inheritance of light so the two things I think go together in Acts 26 as Paul is describing to King Agrippa his uh, conversion experience on his journey to Damascus he says this, he says, the Lord Jesus said this to me. He says, I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, 
that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among all those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Do you not see how that commission that Paul received on the road to Damascus when he came face to face with the resurrected Lord shapes what he says here in Colossians chapter 1. And he says, that is what I've been uh, called into God's purpose for in his grace. Now, guys, do not submit yourself to any authority other than the authority of the cosmic Lord of everything, who is the Christ. So the Father, we see, brings disciples into the inheritance of light and the kingdom of the Son of his love. It was in Jesus that the kingdom of God in its fullest expression at that point in history started to make itself known. Here was Jesus coming to start to defeat visibly the powers of darkness. Mark chapter 1 says that Jesus came out preaching and he said the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. And then he went out into his ministry And he demonstrated it. One day, whenever uh, the religious leaders said, you know, this Jesus who's casting out these uh, unclean spirits, these demons, uh, related to the powers of darkness, he's doing that by the power of the prince of demons. Uh, what, What blasphemy. But the Lord turns around to them and says this, and this is Matthew's account of it in 12 verse 28. Jesus said, if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. New kingdom. Kingdom of God in the person of Jesus breaking into this world that then would be continued by people who submit to his lordship in this world as they ultimately wait for the fullness of the kingdom that is yet to come in the future. That's why if you're ever reading uh, some theology books or commentaries, people will speak of the kingdom of God as the kingdom that is already but not yet. So there is an expression now, submission to the Lordship of Christ, that will one day give way in completeness in all creation to honouring him as Lord. The son of his love. Maybe your mind has done what mine did, thinking of the time when the Lord went to be baptised by John the Baptist and he comes up out of the water and the Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove in the sense it's an anointing of the true king of Israel and the Lord God his father declares from heaven this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased up to that point his life had been perfect as a man and now he's anointed and sent out into his service and then you think about the transfiguration that occasion on the mountain when he takes Peter and James and John up there with him and uh, he's changed before them the glory of who he is shines out and they get a bit mixed up because Moses and Elijah appear as well and Peter says oh we should make three booths and then it says the cloud covered them the glory cloud of God's presence and the voice comes out of the cloud this is my beloved listen to him he's the final authority don't listen to Moses well in fact do but he's not the ultimate authority Elijah was the great prophet and he had authority but it's not the authority of the eternal son and he's come to break into the darkness to bring his people out into the inheritance of light the kingdom of the son of his love 
And notice then verse 14, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. He's the one through whom God has paid the price for the accumulated debt of our sins, Paul goes on to speak about later in the letter. God is satisfied in Christ's life and his death, confirmed by his raising him from the dead. He is satisfied that all that sin that we have accumulated is atoned for through the offering of his life in death. And he's able to forgive while at the same time remaining, remaining absolutely just in all of his righteousness. That's what God has done. He's done it for us as he's done it for the people who received this letter. Now, we're racing on to verses 15 through 20. There's a bit of debate that some, and depends on what your Bible uh, layout has it, some may see it there laid out as poetry, because there is some debate, given the structure of what we have here, and we can't get into it in detail, that it could be a song or it could be a poem that either Paul penned or that was already in circulation. It might have been an early creed. And he might have employed it here to drive the point home and says, you guys already know this. That's speculation. Let's just take it, shall we, that Paul's written it here. And he says, now this one through whom the Father has brought you into the inheritance of light and the kingdom of the Son of his love. This is who he is. So it might be a hymn. It might be a song. He is the image of the invisible God. God is invisible. He's spirit. He cannot be seen to us because we inhabit the physical realm. But the spirit realm is real and it's there. And God is spirit. Now, when humanity was created in the garden, Genesis 1... You go back and look at verses 26 and 27. God says, let us make man in our image. And then we were made in his likeness. There's always been lots of debate over what that means. I have become increasingly convinced, and I put it to you as the way to understand it, that image there is more to do with role and function than it is to do about attributes. Because God straight afterwards says... You're to go and to populate the earth and you're to take care of it. That was the dominion mandate. Humanity, on my behalf, in partnership with me, is to rule over creation. So we are distinct from the animal and the plant kingdoms because of that. Although we are linked genetically, we are distinct. Because we are made in the image of God that we might, as he is the sovereign over everything, then he has given us humanity the responsibility to rule. And we know how that then descended into absolute chaos in Genesis chapter 3. Now, while humans, to some degree, give an expression of God in the world, and it's a much distorted thing now than it was with Adam and Eve in the beginning, you then have the Son who comes in, the eternal Son of God who steps into humanity, and he is... We're told here, the image of the invisible God. He had been that from all eternity. He is that now and he will be forever. He is the expressed image of God. Now, the word icon here has two senses. It uh, can mean an exact likeness like you would have on a coin which has the monarch's head on it. Or when you look in the mirror, you see the image of yourself. It's not the reality, but it is the image. There's that sense to the word. Secondly, the word can mean a manifestation of nature and being. 
And you have that in Christ. Borrowing from the writer of the letter to the Hebrews. Verse 3 of chapter 1. He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. So the Son from all of eternity has been the expression of who God is. And when he comes into humanity, as we're told, he possesses all of the fullness of deity in one person with two natures. And that's a mystery in addition to the Trinity. Trinity, one God in three persons. Christ, one person, two natures. Unique. And he is the fullness of the expression of God. And when he becomes a man, he is the perfect man. He fulfills what humanity should have fulfilled. Because in his sinlessness, he was absolutely in every way obedient to the Father. In exercising the authority of a human being, and we see it throughout his life, in his control over creation, and his authority over the dark forces, and so on as well. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4 tells us that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they will not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. The image of God has come in the form of Jesus Christ to make God known to us. And he is then the firstborn over all creation. This is where Jehovah's Witnesses will actually start a discussion with you. They'll go to this text and say, look, He's the firstborn. He was the first one that was born. It's not the sense of the Greek word. The Greek word here, if you're interested, is prototokos, which can mean, there's two senses again with this, first in rank or first in terms of chronology, in terms of time. Now, if Paul had wanted to say that Christ was the first created being, he would have used a different word, which is prototistos. He didn't use that. That means to be first created. When you look at the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Psalm 89, verse 27, speaks of David, the king. David is my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. If you go to Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, God says, Israel is my son, my firstborn. That's the sense in which this word is used here. He's the first in rank. It's not... He is before creation, of course, because he has always existed. But he is the first in rank. He is not created. He is eternally the Son of God. When you come to verse 18 and you find the word prototokos again with firstborn, that's more to do with uh, time. So he is the first to have been raised. But also because he was the first to have been raised from the dead in the resurrection that Christ has, has brought into the darkness. He, he is the one also that is over it all. So it's wonderful to see it. And then we're told that this one is the creator and the sustainer of creation. Because by him, because by him all things were created. Things in heaven, on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. That's a description of the, the forces that operate in the spiritual realm that have an influence on what happens on earth. Go and study uh, some of the more mysterious parts of your scriptures and they tell you that. That what happens in the spirit realm plays out on earth. He has the authority over it all. But notice something in this. About the love that exists between father and son. It was created through him. 
and created for him. You know, if you create something or you make something for someone you love, it's an expression of your love. And if you do it together, then that's even more special, one might say. Here we can see something of that. And he, verse 17, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This is reaffirming what's already been said, Paul's saying here. That he is before, in terms of time, everything that has ever come into existence. All things, everything that exists is because of the Son. And all things consist because of him. Uh, Lightfoot says this, not my father-in-law. He says, it's why we have a cosmos and not a chaos. Because of the Son. Now then, this Saviour, we need to race on here. This Son, the Beloved One, is also not only the Lord of creation, but he is also the Lord of the new creation, which begins with the people of God who put their faith and their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And on the basis of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. It's the beginning of what God has promised is coming in the future, the new heaven and the new earth. He is the beginning of that. He's the head of it, the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He's the one who is the first one to have been resurrected into the glorious body that is able to inhabit heaven and earth at the same time that we will enjoy when heaven and earth overlap in the future for eternity and we will share in that sort of body and he is head over all those who are his so he is head over creation lord of it all but he is also paul goes on to say that he is lord over the new creation which begins with us what the grace of god so that he might have the first place in everything and it was the father's good pleasure that all the fullness would dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself. The fullness here is a permanent dwelling. It's not a temporary thing that some people teach. It's the sense in the language, if you look at it carefully, it speaks of, of a permanent thing. The fullness of God from all of eternity has been in the Son and that fullness continued when the Son took on humanity. The one man with two natures who became our wonderful saviour. And he is the one through whom the reconciliation to an offended God has come. So you can see how, going back to verse 12, helps us then. You can see how Paul mirrors all this. And actually, the poem is one that if you follow all the way uh, through, you can see things that uh, line up in it. So don't miss this parallel that Paul is making between the present creation over which Christ the Son is the Lord, and also the beginnings of the new creation, which begins with us, the church, the body, where he is Lord as well. Now then, what about chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, just very quickly. The beloved Son, the Lord of creation, the Lord of the new creation, is Christ. Notice that in the passage in chapter 1, he remains unnamed. But of course, we have in our minds, because Paul uses Christ. Uh, elsewhere around the text we know who he's speaking of he's speaking of the son who is the Christ Christ means the anointed one and uh, Messiah uh, is the translation of the Hebrew word Mashiach now the Jews were looking for this anointed one to come 
And uh, Peter said to Cornelius in Acts 10, You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power and how he went about doing good and healing all those who were oppressed of the devil. You see how all this fits together? What I'm going to say to you here is when Paul, and this has been a learning point for me, when Paul uses Christ in his writings and his letters, he's not necessarily thinking of Christ as being Jesus, being the fulfillment of the Messiah for the Jews. He just takes that for granted. He's come to know that for himself. He might have, as we have recorded three times in the Acts, go into the synagogues and say, the one that I'm proclaiming to you, Jesus, he is the Messiah to the Jews. But when he's writing to predominantly Gentiles, he just takes that title, Christ. And that title for Christ means this is the uniquely anointed man of God who is the only Saviour and the only Lord. And that's the sense, I see it now, in which Paul uses that term. Here is the ultimate human being anointed by God. To fulfill what humanity failed. And actually to reconcile all people to himself. So he's reinforcing that. Now then, what about us? Just to conclude. How does this hit us? The beloved son of the father is the lord of creation. And the lord of the new creation. And that begins with us believers. Anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. This lord demands our allegiance. That follows If creation does everything that creation does because he is Lord of creation and he holds it together, then as the one who has given us life and holds that life together for us, then it follows that we, in our decisions and our choices, will want to follow and honour the Lord over us. In 1 John 2 verse 20, John says, We have received an anointing from the Holy One. And that's the means by which then God can fulfill his purpose in us, which Paul says in Romans 8, 29, is that those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So with the help of the Spirit, we are able to honour the Lord and to live for him in such a way that we become more like him and give expression to the victory of the new creation that has broken through into this world of darkness doesn't that transform our lives into being those inheritors of the saints and light inheritance of the saints and light to live that out under this great cosmic lord there's plenty for us to think about in that passage thanks for listening